Yes, it's six days after election day, but the term too early to call still very much applies. The lead starts right now. 19 uncalled congressional races means we still do not know which party will control the House of Representatives. But center stage right now, both Republican leaders McCarthy in the House and McConnell in the Senate are facing rebellions from within their own ranks. Also this hour, America's most popular governor, Republican Charlie Baker of Massachusetts, in a CNN exclusive, reacting to his party's midterm failures and talking about where he thinks the GOP needs to go now. Plus a horrifying campus tragedy, three University of Virginia football players killed. And now a former team member is in custody and apparently police had already been warned about him. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. And we start in our politics lead, where the fight to control the House of Representatives is down to 19 key races. CNN projects 204 seats as of now will go to Democrats, 212 to Republicans. To win control, the party needs to win 218 seats. So odds favor Republicans at this hour. But the larger issue for the Republican Party is their underperformance in these midterm elections, with Democrats holding the Senate, perhaps even picking up a seat, and House Republicans falling way short of what the opposition party historically achieves in a midterm election. Republicans, therefore, are now questioning out loud who is to blame. Is it Trump? Is it the Republican establishment? Is it fringe extremist candidates? And more pointedly, Republican officeholders are asking right now who should lead them going forward. Should House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy be the next Speaker of the House? Does Minority Leader Mitch McConnell still have enough support to lead his party in the Senate? CNN's Manu Raju is on Capitol Hill, where McCarthy and McConnell are currently facing rebellions from lawmakers within their own party. As Republicans move closer to securing a razor-thin House majority, they are confronting this question. Do we have the wrong strategy? Republicans are likely stuck with a narrow House majority which would make governing difficult and complicate House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy's path to the speakership. Democrats like Michigan's Hillary Skolton, who picked up a GOP seat, says voters sent a message. People are tired of the divisiveness and the extremism that today's Republican Party embodies. As the incoming freshmen gathered in the Capitol today, McCarthy was behind closed doors, trying to lock down the votes to become speaker and wielding the support of former President Donald Trump. Also winning the backing of the staunch Trump ally and controversial conservative Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's very, very risky right now to produce a leadership challenge, especially for Speaker of the House. Also backing McCarthy, incoming Republican Mike Lawler, who won one of four key GOP races in New York, likely enough to secure the majority. I fully support Kevin McCarthy uh, and will support him for speaker. Yet McCarthy can only afford to lose a handful of GOP votes to win the 218 he needs in January to become speaker. And Arizona's Andy Biggs is considering a challenge to deny him the votes. In the Senate, an even bigger GOP debacle after Democrats retain the majority and could add a seat after next month's runoff in Georgia. The red wave proved to be a red mirage. Senate GOP leader Mitch McConnell facing backlash from some conservatives who want to hit the brakes on this Wednesday's leadership elections. It would be insane 
if we reelect the same leadership two days from now. Trump is blaming McConnell. Is that fair? No, that's not fair at all. All as Democrats are prepared for their own shakeup once Speaker Nancy Pelosi decides whether to step aside. So my decision will again be rooted in what uh, the wishes of my family and uh, the wishes of my caucus. New members of Congress, including the first Gen Z member, 25-year-old Maxwell Frost, are watching closely. Do you think that your leadership team should reflect this younger, uh, uh, the younger class of members? Yeah, I think generally we need younger people in office across this country and in Congress. I do think we should have young people represented in leadership as well. Now, just in a matter of minutes, Republicans will be gathering behind me for their first meeting since the midterm elections. They're going to have a candidate forum. We could see the challenger who will emerge to Kevin McCarthy. Just moments ago, Andy Biggs would not confirm that he himself is running, but he did promise that there ultimately would be a challenger. Jake, the Republicans in the Conservative Freedom Caucus want to have more leverage over the Speaker, something that McCarthy has not yet agreed to. And the Senate side of the Capitol, Mitch McConnell was just asked if he has the votes to stay as Republican leader, and he said, of course. Jake. All right, Manu Raja on Capitol Hill, thanks so much. In Arizona, six days after Election Day, ballots are still being counted in the high-profile governor's race. Right now, Democratic candidate Katie Hobbs is leading by 24,000 votes over Republican candidate Carrie Lake. Nearly 175,000 votes are still outstanding and need to be counted. CNN's Kyung La is inside the Maricopa County Election Center in Phoenix. Uh, Kyung, when do we expect the next update on vote totals? In just about four hours, Jake, we're anticipating that Maricopa County will release another batch of votes in that 6 p.m. local time, 8 p.m. Eastern time hour. And this is a critical batch of votes. The Lake campaign knows they need to overperform, overperform at a good clip in order to stay in the game. Meanwhile, what is happening here at the county is that the counting is still continuing. They are still diligently going through these votes, curing the ballots, adjudicating any questions on these ballots. And we are, for the first time, hearing some outward confidence from the Democrat, Katie Hobbs, her campaign. The campaign posted on Twitter last night after those vote tallies from Maricopa County. Quote, Katie has led since the first round of ballots were counted, and after tonight, meaning Sunday night's results, it's clear that this will not change. Uh, We are also hearing from Democrats who are projected to win here in the state of Arizona, and they are urging those Trump-endorsed candidates to accept these election results even if they don't go their way. The question is, Jake, are any of them listening? And Kyung, uh, Carrie Lake, as you know, has uh, been a big election liar. She spreads all the false claims about the results of the 2020 election. She is also uh, reluctant to say whether she would accept uh, the results of her own governor's race if she loses. So given this unstable approach, how is she reacting to the close vote totals? Well, we're seeing a slight slightly different tactic today after last night really the campaign going completely radio silent today started posting again and again as well as on multiple campaign uh, support sites that they wanted their followers or supporters to check their ballots we're seeing that narrative being picked up by further right uh, agents on social media saying that this is leading to questions jake on whether or not this process is legitimate at all Jake. All right, Kyung La in Phoenix, thanks so much. In Massachusetts now, 
Democrat Mar Healy won the governor's office there with an astounding 64% of the vote. A lopsided victory, partly attributable to the fact that the Republican nominee had extreme views on any number of issues, including his belief in Trump's deranged election lies. Healy will succeed two-term Republican Governor Charlie Baker. Baker is leaving office with the highest approval ratings of any governor in the United States. 73% of Massachusetts residents approve of the job Governor Baker did. And to remind you, Governor Baker is a Republican governing a deep blue state or commonwealth. Baker rarely does national TV interviews, but he invited me to his office in the Statehouse for an exclusive one-on-one because he was seemingly so distressed about where the Republican Party is headed. I've never really seen a midterm election like this. You have a substantial percentage of the country disapproving of a Democratic president, thinking the country's on the wrong track, and yet so many people in battleground states rejected Republicans Democrats are going to hold the Senate, if not pick up a seat. If Kevin McCarthy becomes speaker, and that's an if, he'll have the slimmest of majorities. What, what went wrong for the Republican Party? Well, I, I think the biggest issue uh, that played out in the midterms is something that I've talked about a lot over the course of the past eight years, which is voters, generally speaking, especially in battleground states, um, aren't interested in extremism. They just aren't. They want people who they believe are going to be reasonable, who are going to be collaborative, and who represent sort of the fundamental tenet of democracy, that it's supposed to be a distributed decision-making model, and you're supposed to be okay with that. And I think in the midterms, one of the big lessons that the Republican Party nationally needs to take away from it is, uh, is voters want collaborative elected officials. They don't want extremes. You are going to be succeeded by a Democrat. Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland, he's also going to be succeeded by a Democrat. Both of you popular two-term Republican governors in Democratic states, and yet the Republican voters picked MAGA extremist candidates that had no chance of, of, of winning a general election. I don't understand what's going on with your party. Is it the influence of Donald Trump? Is it the influence of a movement that doesn't care about winning general elections? Well, I certainly think there's... Uh, significant influence from the former president um, and I think that influence uh, probably hurt the party and and hurt the party's chances on election day not just here in Massachusetts and Maryland but in many of those other battleground states what voters want are candidates who are going to and, and elected officials who are going to reach out who are going to engage with the so-called other side and uh, and who are going to take seriously this idea that you are supposed to try to represent and hear the voices of all of the people that you serve. When you talk about the Republican Party needing to heed these lessons, I'm wondering if one of the things you're thinking of is we saw some Republican leaders who are not election liars, at least not explicitly so, Governor Youngkin of Virginia, Governor DeSantis of Florida, going and endorsing extremists, Carrie Lake in Arizona, uh, Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania. I'm from Pennsylvania. I've never seen a candidate statewide like that. Do you think that the DeSantis's and Youngkins of the world are the kinds of people that need to be thinking about, look, I can't be throwing away my credibility on these extremists? Uh, the big message coming out of Tuesday, and I would argue the big message voters are going to send going forward, is you need to demonstrate in word and deed that you believe this is, more, but this is always going to be about more than just your party and your partisans. Um, 
That was the whole point of the lecture I gave at the Kennedy School a couple of weeks ago, where my whole message was um, that the parties are losing millions of voters every year who are giving up on them and becoming independents. Massachusetts, 60% of the electorate at this point are, are registered independents or unenrolled voters, depending upon what term you like. Um, but that's a big statement that people are making about what they think about the narrowness of the vision and the, uh, and the attitude of the parties. So let's talk about your speech at Harvard, because in addition to faulting extremism, you talked about social media having what you called a, quote, profoundly negative consequences for nations and, and for our nation and for our politics. You said, quote, finding people who share your love of gardening is just as easy as finding people who share your love of hate speech. So what can be done? So that was um, part of the reason I talked about that was I was so amazed by what David Bowie said in 1999. Um, for those of your viewers who are not old enough to remember, they should just Google Ziggy Stardust. But David Bowie was a very well-known musical uh, artist and artist generally in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And he gave an interview at the end of the 90s where he said that what the internet was going to be was unimaginable and that it would be exhilarating and terrifying and that it would completely change everything about the relationship between the content producer and the content uh, user and receiver. And um, and he was right. And he said, because of this, there will be a duality here. The, the, there will be certain things the Internet that will do that will be wonderful and amazing. And that's absolutely the case. But he also said it would create tremendous disruption and this capacity um, for, uh, for a very dark side to find itself and, and to leverage it and to, and to make it something where truth would be defined by the users and the producers. And I think in some ways he was right, you know, and, and, and he was the only one who was talking about this back then. I give him huge credit. And I think the, the challenge for all of us is to accept and recognize that the Internet is there, social media is there, um, but what does it really stand for and represent? And I've said for a long time that I do not believe the vast majority of the people who get up and go to work every day, get up and go to school every day, worry about their families and their communities and their kids and their neighbors, um, spend anywhere near as much time on social media caring about politics as people in politics and people in media think they do. And I view it as, an, as a universe. It's a big one. It's loud. It's organized. It's influential. It's noisy. But it's not where most people live. And I think at some point, we as a society need to accept and understand that those folks are going to work really hard to drag as many voices and as many eyeballs onto their platforms as they possibly can. Um, but they aren't where big chunks of, um, of the world lives. I think about social media, and I think two, that we've seen two effects of it in, in recent years. One, January 6th. That is a, tr a president putting out lies on social media, People responding on social media, Twitter, Facebook, all sorts of other Finding ones. each other, too. I mean, finding you, each you other, You can't yeah. underestimate the power of exactly. being able to find each other and, and create, you know, isolated little groups of people who are, um, who are bent a certain way with respect to how they think about society and rules and mores and all the rest. As isolated individuals out there, that's one thing. But when they all find each other, that's different. You have always credited your attitude towards politics, towards how you were raised by a liberal Democrat mom and a conservative Republican dad. 
And I'm wondering um, what lessons specifically you learned from that that made you the politician you are in terms of uh, your, the positions you take, but also not you, you're not um, you haven't been an outspoken critic of Donald Trump. You've been critical of him when asked, but you haven't been out there criticizing him. And you are the most popular governor in the country in a Democratic Commonwealth. So um, my mom and dad um, were happily married for 60 years before my mom passed away. And they never voted for the same person. And our dinner, dinner table was hilarious. Um, and a lot of my friends would come to watch. But if they got called on, some of them didn't come back for a second time. But the point here was it wasn't a fight. It wasn't a contest. It wasn't even really a debate. It was a discussion and an inquiry. And, um, and one of the things that was true from the beginning was um, if my parents really thought you weren't listening to what somebody else was saying and you were just trying to jam home your own point, you would get penalized and told, you know, you got to either answer their question or, you know, we're going to skip you for the next few rounds here. And the biggest message I took from it was um, you learn a lot from listening to people you don't always agree with. And, um, and that's certainly been true for me in public life. I am so much better as a person and as, a, as an elected official because of the conversations I've had with people whose life experiences and whose points of view are different than mine than I ever would have been if I just talked to people I agreed with. And Can you give me an example of that? Because, I mean, you come from a very elite background. Your father worked for the Secretary of Transportation uh, during the Nixon years. You went to Harvard. You went to Harvard Graduate School. And you also went to Kellogg at Northwestern. So you come to this job with a set of priors, as we all do for everything we do. Who opened your mind? So. Um, after I lost, I ran three times for governor. I lost the first time in 2010 to former Governor Deval Patrick. And I went and talked to the media, people who covered the race. I talked to a lot of the chattering class. I talked to a whole bunch of people. I went and talked to my friends. And um, it was really humiliating. Everybody told me what I did wrong and what a horrible candidate it was. But one guy in particular said to me, um, you spent way too much time with your customers and not enough time with your prospects. And so when we ran, when Lauren, my wife, and I decided to run in 14, I spent a lot of time campaigning in places where there weren't any Republicans, a lot of cases where there weren't really even any white people. And a lot of those folks were surprised to see me. They'd never seen anybody running for office before at the state level um, who was a Republican. And, um, and I just listened. I, didn't, I asked them questions. I didn't really talk very much. And... I learned a lot, and a lot of what I learned from those conversations factored into the way we appointed people, to the way we organized a lot of our programming, to where we focused, especially during the pandemic, um, on communities that I knew were going to be in more trouble than others if we didn't step up and, and, and help them. Um, and it changed the way I thought about a lot of things. And in a good way and made me, as I said, I think a much better public official than I would have been otherwise. A lot of those conversations were really uncomfortable, okay? But, um, but the biggest thing I took from it is that learning, especially learning things that um, you maybe not want to hear. That, like what? That's a painful process. Like what? Um, that this country for a very long time made it really hard through zoning and public housing and uh, mortgage finance policy for black people or Hispanic people to own a home. Redline. And that and that is in fact the number one way people in America have built wealth for decades. 
That's fascinating. And that's just something you learned by going there. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you'd read about it before, but actually seeing it. There's nothing quite like talking to people who bring um, a real-world, real-life experience to a conversation. Now, when people yell at each other, right, they're just yelling past each other. Nobody's hearing anything either side is saying, all right? You got to be willing to go listen and stop walking in there with a point of view or an attitude that you already know the answer to the questions. It seems like so much of how politicians address these issues is about demonizing the other side uh, on critical race theory, on trans students. I see a lot of people in the Republican Party doing that. And there's probably a very nuanced view that a lot of people in the center have about a lot of these issues. Totally agree with that. I think the, the whole question about um, Racism generally, I happen to think there's a nuanced conversation to be had on that too. But if you were to ask me if the Democrats and Republicans are having a nuanced conversation on that, my answer would be no. I also asked Governor Baker his take on why more Republicans are not looking at his success and impressive popularity and thinking, wow, he would be a good 2024 presidential candidate for us. You can hear his response in the next hour here on The Lead. Coming up this hour, the growing dissent within Republican ranks against minority leader Kevin McCarthy becoming House Speaker. I'll speak with a Republican member of Congress about that. Plus, a victory for Ukraine, the key city of Kherson, no longer under Russia's control. But see why there are still difficult and dangerous days ahead. Stay with us. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy may be that much closer to the job. He's never been quiet about Watts. And here he is seven years ago before he blew it. And House Republicans rallied for, for, uh, instead for Paul Ryan. Do you have the votes? Can't, will you be the next speaker? Have you locked it up? I feel very good about where I'm at. At this hour, Republicans are set to meet behind closed doors to determine if McCarthy should be next in line to get that job of House Speaker, if Republicans win the majority, he faces a potential challenge from Arizona Congressman Andy Biggs. One member planning to be in that meeting is Republican Congressman Andy Barr from Kentucky, who joins us now. Congressman, thanks so much. You and your campaign had a good night in Kentucky. You won re-election by around 30 points. But your overwhelming victory was, was not really replicated by other Republicans across the country. The red wave that was predicted on Fox never materialized. What did you make of the results on election night, and, and why do you think it happened that way? Well, Jake, thanks for having me on the program. And obviously, Republicans, including uh, Republicans in Congress, are disappointed that that red wave did not materialize. But no matter how you cut it, uh, Republicans are materially better off today as we uh, head towards what appears to be a Republican, although a small Republican majority in the House, because the principal goal of this election was to retire Nancy Pelosi, to, to take back the House. It appears we're well on the way to doing that. And that means that we're going to be able to stop this disastrous Biden agenda that uh, continues to wreak havoc on our economy. The inflation crisis, the border crisis, the crime crisis, none of that changes. The president's uh, approval rating is still historically low. And so the problems facing our country are the same, but what will change will be a, a change in the leadership of the House of Representatives, and that will provide a much needed check and balance mm -hmm. 
uh, to the federal government, which I think will be good in the long run in terms of solving some of these problems and providing some accountability instead of one-party rule in Washington. In just a few minutes, you will be joining the rest of your caucus in a meeting to discuss who's going to lead Republicans in the House. Since Election Day, some in your party have been threatening to not support Kevin McCarthy in his bid to be Speaker. Texas Congressman Chip Roy told reporters that no one currently has 218 votes. Virginia Congressman Bob Good says McCarthy has not done anything to earn my vote. Just a short while ago, Congressman Matt Gates told CNN's Melanie Zanona that Kevin McCarthy is not the right man to unify the House Republican caucus. Do you think McCarthy is at risk of not being picked to lead your party? I do not think he is at risk. I think Kevin McCarthy will be not only our leader, but I think he'll be the Speaker of the House. No one in our conference has done more uh, to pick up these seats that we have. Look, again, we are disappointed we didn't have the red wave that we wanted, but that that certainly wasn't Kevin McCarthy's fault. Kevin McCarthy did more to raise money to recruit candidates. And by the way, candidates who are well positioned and who did win their districts and beat incumbent Democrats. If you look at the if you look at the places where Republicans fared poorly, uh, a lot of that had to do with uh, primaries that resulted in selecting a candidate that didn't fit the general election electorate. And so Republicans need to have certainly soul searching about how we uh, how we can do better in 2024. We after all, we owe it to our philosophy to win. So let's look at how we can do better and how we can win. Kevin McCarthy has been dedicated to taking back the House. He's accomplished mm-hmm. that objective. And, and so I think uh, no, one, no one can cl- lay claim to doing more to help our conference than Kevin McCarthy. He deserves to be the next speaker. So it's interesting that you raise that, the idea of electing uh, or, or nominating more extreme candidates, more MAGA candidates. That, that d- absolutely uh, was a hindrance to your party's goals. Um, the irony is that because voters voted against candidates like that, extremists, uh, the ones who did win re-election, like Lauren Boebert in Colorado or Margie Taylor Greene in Georgia, who have demands for Kevin McCarthy, like we get to depose of a speaker on the floor of the House whenever we want, they are going to have more power than ever before. And I wonder how much you're afraid that those individuals will distract from the business that you and more mainstream Republicans want to achieve if, in fact, you win the House? Well, I think in a very narrow majority, everyone, every single member, whether they're moderate, whether they're uh, conservative, whether they're uh, Freedom Caucus, uh, all of all members have a lot of leverage, right? Because you can't lose any one vote. What it means is we have to be unified. If we're not unified, then none of these Republicans will get what they want. The only way to advance our cause the advance the cause of conservatism to to provide that check that meaningful check and balance on the Biden administration and be the voice that our constituents sent us to Washington to be is to stay united. Otherwise, we might as well not even be in the majority. We just might as well turn over control of the House floor uh, to to the Democrat majority. So I hope that's the lesson that all members, regardless of where they are in the party ideologically, I hope we come to that consensus. No doubt. It's going to be a challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but I think we all need to recognize that if there's uh, any substantial defections in a, in a small majority, we might as well not even be in the majority. Uh, and, and that's, I, I hope, the lesson that we will take from this. But at the, at the end of the day, mm-hmm. while Republicans are certainly disappointed we didn't have a, a, a red wave, 
um, they don't give out small, medium, or large-sized gavels. They only give out gavels. Right. And, and the goal is to get the majority because then we set the agenda. We will have oversight uh, authority, and we will be able to uh, put the brakes on this Biden agenda. That's why the okay. American people have given us uh, this apparent majority. Republican Congressman Andy Barr from Kentucky, thank you and congratulations again on your reelection. Appreciate your being here today. I'm thank also you. going to speak with former Vice President Mike Pence about the future of the Republican Party in a live CNN town hall. You can look for that Wednesday night at nine o'clock Eastern only here on CNN. President Biden and China's leader Xi Jinping, what Biden says he took away from their conversation. That's next. Worldly now, President Biden facing a critical test on multiple fronts in his first in-person meeting since taking office with Chinese leader Xi Jinping. As CNN's Phil Mattingly reports for us now, the meeting comes amid rising tensions between the superpowers. I absolutely believe there need not be a new Cold War. For President Biden, the most consequential meeting of his presidency, coming at a moment fierce competition between the U.S. and China, has edged closer to outright confrontation. I believe uh, this is critical for the sake of our two countries and the international community. A risk reflected not just by Biden, but by Xi Jinping. Currently, the China-U.S. relationship is in such a situation that we all care a lot about it because this is not the fundamental interest of our two countries and peoples, and it is not what the international community expects us. Biden's first in-person sit-down with Xi, driven by the highest stakes. I do not think there's any imminent attempt on the part of China to invade Taiwan. From Taiwan's future to battles over technology, human rights to economic challenges, a wide-ranging three-hour meeting to take down the temperature. We were very blunt with one another about places where we disagreed. An inflection point for two leaders who have known one another for more than a decade. And we're not going to be able to work everything out. I'm not suggesting it's going to, this is kumbaya, you know, everybody is going to go away with everything in agreement. Biden and Xi pledging to reopen long-frozen lines of communication between their top deputies. The meeting coming as Xi sits at the apex of his power after securing a norm-breaking third term, something Biden said hadn't shifted the Chinese leader's approach. I didn't find him more confrontational or more conciliatory. I found him what he's always been, direct and straightforward. As he touted his own political capital in the wake of history-defying midterm results. What these elections showed is that there's a deep and unwavering commitment in America to preserving and protecting and defending democracy. The two leaders actively engaged on issues of mutual interest, including climate change and international aid. As Biden pushed Xi to make a more concerted effort to manage North Korea's rapidly escalating actions. I thought they had an obligation to attempt to make it clear to North Korea that they should not engage in long-range nuclear tests. A bilateral relationship defined by mistrust and opacity, but touching on every corner of the globe. I want to be clear, and be clear with all leaders, but particularly with Xi Jinping, that I mean what I say and I say what I mean. Where the risk of miscalculation could bring catastrophic consequences. That's the biggest concern is I have is a misunderstanding about intentions or actions on each of our parts. And Jake, U.S. officials plan to move quickly to try and lock in those new lines of communication. In fact, Secretary of State Antony Blinken scheduled to go to Beijing as early as the first half of next year, Jake. All right, Phil Manningly in Bali, Indonesia. Thanks so much. CNN 
is also in Kherson, that's the Ukrainian city liberated from Russian control. See how Putin's forces created a disaster zone before they got kicked out. Stay with us. In our world lead, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visited the liberated city of Kherson today after it was battered for months by Russia's illegal occupation. CNN's Nick Robertson was one of the first journalists in Kherson after the Ukrainians' momentous victory. Flanked by troops who helped liberate the city, President Zelensky made a lightning trip to Kherson Monday, the nation's most significant victory in months. This is the beginning of the, the end of the war. Was, you see our strong army, we are step by step coming to our, to our country, to all the temporary occupied territories. A morale boost for the country and president alike. Zelensky pledging peace on Ukraine's, not Russia's, terms and vowing to reconnect Kherson's residents to the rest of the country. To make them feel that we're not only talking about it, but we're really returning, really raising our flag. Today's flags, a much-needed temporary cell phone tower erected, reconnecting residents to loved ones, cut off since the retreating Russians destroyed the phone and internet services. And a truck full of humanitarian aid, the first to arrive since liberation 72 hours ago. Candles, bread, water handed out to eager residents who have been without electricity and water since the Russian retreat. How much is this needed here? Desperately. Uh, I was speaking to people about what is lacking, what they have, uh, what they've lost, and basically the reality is supermarkets don't work, shops are crazy expensive or don't work. In the city's neighbourhoods, poorly stocked street markets hint at how much more help is needed. Some goods, like drinking water, nearly impossible to find. What help do you need from the government now here? Electricity, water, and very hot in the home, very cold. Within hours of Zelensky's visit, Russian artillery destroyed a house in the north of the city. A reminder, Russian troops are not far away. Where they retreated Friday, the pontoon they used to flee across now partially sunk. The once mighty Antonovsky Bridge crippled by US-made HIMARS that helped trigger the Russian collapse in Tatars too. But the Russians didn't go far. And that's where the danger is for Kherson, just on the other side of the bridge. That's where the Russian positions are. They've dug in within easy shelling range of the city. Zelensky's visit, perhaps the closest to the front line since the war began. Nick Robertson, CNN, Kherson, Ukraine. And our thanks to Nick Robertson in Ukraine. Coming up next, murders on a college campus in the United States. Three student-athletes killed. What police are now saying about the suspect's arrest. Stay with us. A University of Virginia student is now in custody, accused of killing three football players on campus and injuring two others. As CNN's Miguel Marquez reports, police say the suspect had been on their radar. 
Pardon me. In the middle of a press conference, the news everyone was hoping for after more than 12 hours of lockdown and fear at yet another major American university. We just received information the suspect is in custody. Henrico police say they picked up University of Virginia student Chris Jones about 75 miles outside of the Charlottesville campus. The former UVA football player is accused of opening fire late Sunday. The shootings occurred on a bus full of students returning from a field trip. Three of the victims did not survive. The dead, all football players, all with their lives ahead. Devin Chandler, Deshaun Perry, and Lavelle Davis Jr. UVA's president says Jones wounded two other students, one in good condition, the other critically injured. My heart is broken for the victims and their families and for all who, those who knew and loved them. The incident has shocked this community of 27,000 students, especially shaking more than 500 students locked down overnight as officers desperately search campus for the suspect. We heard some of the shots and then almost immediately rumors were flying. We were basically turned the lights off, hunkered down, um, trying to just stay put. Um, I was feeling pretty anxious. This is not the first time Jones has come to the UVA police department's attention. They say he was involved in a threat assessment with the investigation revealing a 2021 concealed weapon violation. This is a third shooting incident tied to a Virginia school this year alone. In February at Bridgewater College, a former student athlete was accused of killing two police officers. Days later, near the Virginia Tech campus, a gunman shot five people, killing a teenager. Jones, for now, faces three counts of murder. And, prob and probably many more charges ahead. Uh, Jones was picked up by a Henrico police officer that was paying attention, saw the car, pulled him over, was arrested without incident. Jake? Miguel Marquez in Charlottesville, Virginia. Thank you so much. Coming up, how Donald Trump could get the last word with the January 6th committee without ever showing up to testify. Stay with us. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, one of the world's richest men talks about the state of the economy. CNN's exclusive interview with Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. Plus, Donald Trump making a new bid to stop the criminal investigation into whoever was responsible for those classified documents ending up at Mar-a-Lago. And leading this hour, as the country waits to see if the GOP will take control of the House of Representatives, an intra-party fight among Republicans over who will lead their likely very narrow majority is spilling out into the public. Republican House Leader Kevin McCarthy and Republican Senate Leader Mitch McConnell are facing backlash from the far right wing of their party. Let's go to CNN's Melanie Zanona on Capitol Hill. And Melanie, Kevin McCarthy has an influential Republican making some calls on his behalf in his battle for the speaker's gavel. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's exactly right. Kevin McCarthy is getting some key backup from former President Donald Trump. Sources tell me and my colleague Gabby Orr that Donald Trump has been calling people, encouraging them to support McCarthy for speaker. He essentially wants to protect McCarthy from any blame for the poor midterm performance because he needs McCarthy if he's going to run for president in 2024. And it does seem that some allies of Trump have gotten the message. Marjorie Taylor Greene, once a McCarthy critic, now saying that she thinks it's a bad idea for someone to challenge McCarthy and that they need to unite behind McCarthy. But not everyone in the party feels the same way. Take a listen to what Congressman Matt Gates said on a podcast earlier today. 
Right now, there are a lot of the establishment Republicans in denial, believing that Kevin McCarthy can somehow still become speaker. What I'm here to tell you is there are definitely at least five people, actually a lot more than that, who would rather be waterboarded by Liz Cheney than vote for Kevin McCarthy for Speaker of the House. And I'm one of them. Now, the only reason why these fringe voices matter is because of the math. If Republicans do end up winning the majority, it is going to likely be by a razor thin margin. And so McCarthy can only afford to lose maybe a handful of Republicans. And so far, I'm told there are enough Republicans who are threatening to vote against him unless they give in, unless he gives in to their demands. But right now, McCarthy is behind closed doors at a Canada forum, making his pitch to members, saying we need to unite and making his pitch for why he should be the next speaker. And meanwhile, Melanie, in the Senate, uh, Senate Republicans have called for leadership elections to be postponed. Explain that. Yeah, so Mitch McConnell is facing a small but growing group of Republicans who are calling to delay the internal leadership elections, which are set for Wednesday. McConnell is plowing through at this point. They are proceeding as planned. And he also told reporters today that, of course, he has the vote to become speaker. He only needs a simple majority in that case. But it is rare to see this level of anger from within the ranks directed at McConnell. And the reason is that Republicans are confused and frustrated and angry right now about why a red wave never materialized. And we are expecting the blame game to continue to heat up this week, Jake. All right, Melanie Zanona on Capitol Hill for us. Thanks so much. Bipartisanship in, a, in an increasingly foreign concept in Washington is an increasingly foreign concept in Washington, but not for Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker. For nearly eight years, Baker has been one of the most popular governors in the United States, which, which is especially noteworthy, given the fact that he's a Republican in a deep blue state, Massachusetts. So does Baker have answers for what Republicans should be doing differently? Here's part two of my exclusive interview. You, in many ways, have been the anti-Trump Republican, although you haven't really billed yourself as that, and you've pretty much kept your powder dry when it comes to criticizing him the way that, for instance, Larry Hogan has done or Liz Cheney has done. Why? Why haven't you been more outspoken against him, even as so much of what you've done here in Massachusetts has been the embodiment of uh, everything he's not in a good way for you. Well, I didn't vote for him either time and made pretty clear why. Um, I also made very clear where I was coming from on the election results in 2020 and have continued to state my case on that one. Um, and I think, uh, I think one of the messages from the election is uh, for Republicans generally is um, we, need, we need as a party to move past uh, President Trump and to move on to an agenda that represents the voices of um, all those in the party and the people of the country because that's clearly one of the messages that was sent to us by battleground state voters and independents in particular, um, that they don't want to play this game uh, through the voice of one person or one personality. And they want us, if we want to win races and to govern, to completely change the way we think about how we do this. Um, but I would not argue that I've been shy about my point of view on this stuff. I've just chosen to make um, the way I govern uh, and the way we get things done um, 
a statement about how I think this should work. And I, you know, that's been the way I've handled almost everything. You're the most popular governor in the country, but you're a member of a party that doesn't nominate moderates, or I don't know how you would describe yourself, but why is the party not running to you and saying, Governor Baker, run for president so that we can bring back the White House into the Republican column? Well, first of all, um, I'm, a, um, I'm a Northeast Republican, which looks and acts a little different than most of many of the Republicans around the country, but that would be true. You could say the same thing about Democrats, depending upon which part of the country you're talking about. It's a 50 state country, and that's part of what makes it beautiful and gorgeous, and also what creates a lot of our, um, a lot of the noise that goes on at the national level. Um, but what I would say is that when I think about the future, first thing I think is that there's a ton of people who will prognosticate about the future, and most of them will be wrong, and everybody will forget that they were wrong, which is one of the reasons why I don't do it very much. Um, what I do believe is that for our party to be successful going forward, especially given the results of, of, uh, of Tuesday, and especially given the reasons why some people voted the way they voted, um, I think it's going to be really important for us to broaden our horizons and get beyond uh, what I would call the core of the party and to start talking to a lot of those independents, of which we have more every day, um, who are willing to hear us out. And as you said earlier, our discerning voters who make their decisions based on the people, the issues, and the context uh, in that moment. And those are going to be the people who determine who win elections going forward. Yeah, but do you think... Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, Elise Stefanik, Ronna McDaniel, Ronna Romney McDaniel. Do you think any of them agree with what you said? Well, I think the voters of the United States agree with what I said, and it's a pretty powerful force. Thanks so much for your time today. It's good to really see you. Really appreciate it. Tomorrow, tune in for more of my exclusive interview with Governor Charlie Baker, including what he says of the lessons he has learned while in office, as well as his biggest failures. Joining us now to talk about the election results, Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna of California. He serves as Deputy Whip for the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And Congressman, congratulations on your re-election. Um, Democrats fared well relative to what was expected and relative to what happens historically in midterm elections, despite record inflation, despite three-quarters of voters in our exit poll saying the country is moving in the wrong direction. Why? Well, we had an odds-defying night, much better than I thought we would do, uh, for two reasons. One, reproductive rights really mattered. People voted on uh, freedom to choose. Uh, and second, democracy mattered. I mean, people may have said, yeah, I'm not thrilled with the gas prices, the food prices, but I'm not going to put in an election denier. I'm not going to put in someone who doesn't believe that you count the vote. So the extremism on the other side, I think, helped us. Do the results in the midterm election send a signal to you that Joe Biden should run for re-election. Yes, yes. I mean, look, uh, this president has been underestimated many times, including by me when I co-chaired Bernie Sanders' campaign. He's always down in the polls, and he finds a way to win. Uh, we were down in the polls in the midterms, but we had a remarkable result, better than President Clinton, better than President Obama, better than almost any modern uh, president. So two places Democrats did not fare that well. Uh, New York... Um, and your home state of California, uh, both of which are pretty blue Democratic strongholds, had your party done better in New York and California, you would likely actually be on track to keep the House of Representatives. Um, 
I know New York had its issue with uh, the incumbent governor who had never been elected to that job, um, not running a great campaign and kind of disparaging people worried about crime, et cetera. And she only won by five points in New York, which is remarkable. But let's put New York aside. What about California? Why did Republicans do so well? And as these votes come in and these counts are finally tabulated, Republicans are picking up seats. Why? What happened in California? Well, first of all, all our incumbents are coming back from California, Katie Porter, Mike Levin. So we won the incumbent seats. But you're right. We didn't uh, win the pickup seats. Uh, Partly, uh, we have strong protections for a woman's right to choose. I think it wasn't as existential for voters in our state because the governor and legislature in our state have been very good. And so then the other factors on the economy uh, mattered. And gas is very high in our state. Uh, Food prices are high. And so I think the economic issues mattered in a way that they didn't perhaps in other states that didn't have the protections for choice, that didn't have uh, protections on elections. Congresswoman uh, Pramila Jayapal, the chair of the Progressive Caucus, of which you're a, you're a whip, she, she dodged on whether the caucus would support House Speaker, current House Speaker Pelosi uh, in the new Congress. Um, House Democrats are scheduled to hold leadership elections in two weeks. Uh, do you want to see Pelosi run again, or is it time for a new, a new, new leadership? I support the speaker. I think she has been incredible in her leadership. Uh, she showed courage in certifying the election after January 6th. She's shown incredible courage to still be out there after the heinous attack on Paul Pelosi. Uh, again, she deserves the, the chance to lead. And if she chooses to lead, she'll have my support. If she makes way for a new generation, uh, then, of course, I'd support one of the new candidates. So it looks as though if Republicans win the majority, it's going to be a, by a very narrow margin. And as you know, every year... A member of the House dies, like in the last, I mean, it's a historical. It's a morbid trend. thought. <laughs> well, I'm just, it's a, yeah. it's a body of 435 right. people, just, many yeah. of whom are over the age of 65. Uh, there's, there's always incumbencies uh, that, are, that are falling by the wayside. Somebody retires, somebody gets indicted, uh, somebody goes <laughs> to jail, somebody gets sick, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I wish all of you that you live long and prosper. I'm just talking about historical trends. But that's going to be really difficult for McCarthy, assuming he's the speaker, uh, to have such a narrow majority. Are there any areas where you think Democrats and Republicans can work together in such an environment? Well, on issues of bringing manufacturing back, I mean, I co-led the CHIPS Act. That was with Representative Mike Gallagher, uh, Senator Todd Young. People want to see us making things in America, not in China. I would hope he's open to that. But, you know, Jake, there were a couple of Republicans who reached out to me, I don't want to say who, who said, can we have reform in the House of Representatives to weaken the power of the leadership? I'm for actually having more rank and file members have a voice on the amendment process, on an open rule. So there's, I think it's going to be an interesting time where you could see a, a strange coalition that actually returns Congress to people, uh, rank and file members, having more of a voice. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how brave we'll see how brave these Republicans are once they get control of the House officially. Congressman, thanks so much, and again, uh, congratulations on your reelection. Coming up, could the public GOP leadership fight actually help the Republican Party? That's next. Then, comedian Jay Leno is in the hospital being treated for serious burns. Details on what happened ahead. Stay with us. We're back with our politics lead. It is not over yet. 19 key races are left to decide the House of Representatives, and a Senate runoff will determine exactly what the balance of power in the Democratic-controlled Senate will be. Let's bring in our panel to discuss. Uh, Ramesh, let me start with you. A source inside the closed-door Republican House conference today, this afternoon, says Kevin McCarthy, who's trying to be Speaker, 
uh, got a standing ovation after making a call for unity. Other members obviously still raising concerns. Do you think that they, the House Republicans will actually ultimately pick McCarthy to lead them? And, and will there be any sort of unity? I think the first question is easier to answer than the second. Uh, I think that McCarthy's great advantage going into this is, A, there's no obvious replacement for him, and B, it's not clear who would even want this job, <laughs> given how difficult it's going to be to run a narrow house. But as for whether there's going to be unity, I think the answer to that is probably not. I think there are going to be, a, there are continuing recriminations among Republicans. And frankly, I think there should be. I think when you do have an election that goes as disappointingly as this one did for the Republicans, it's fine to take some time to argue out what happened and what should happen next. And it's what- was it really disappointing, though? I mean, Andy Barr, Congressman Barr, in your interview today, said it really doesn't matter how much we won by. We've got the gavel. Mm-hmm. We've got the chairmanships. Mm-hmm. We control the agenda on the floor. I mean, you know, they got a lot of advantages. And push comes to shove on the big votes. They're going to come together. Although they don't have the Senate. Right. It looks like Democrats might even potentially pick up a seat. They're definitely holding their majority. I want you to listen to Texas Senator Ted Cruz on his podcast going after uh, the Republican leader, Mitch McConnell. Let me start off by saying I am so pissed off. I cannot even see straight. The country is screwed for the next four years because of this. Mitch would rather be leader than have a Republican majority. If there's a Republican who can win who's not going to support Mitch, the truth of the matter is he'd rather the Democrat win. I'm surprised. I mean, I know Ted Cruz is a little bit of a bomb thrower, and that is in keeping with it. But I'm a little surprised he went that far. I mean, let's be honest. The majority in the Senate isn't even close if Mitch McConnell's Senate Leadership Fund doesn't raise and spend the amount of money it spent, including $30 million in Ohio. Um, I think it's a little sour grapes. I think it's a little sort of backseat driver like, man, if only they had done that thing I said that we should do. You know, to me, Mitch McConnell, you don't beat someone with nothing. Tom Cotton had a great quote this weekend. He said, if you want to beat the man, if you want to be the man, you got to beat the man. And the truth is, there's just not if, if it's spare on the House side of people who want to run against McCarthy. My gosh, I mean, Rick Scott, Rick Scott's not going to get a majority of the Republican caucus to vote for him. I just thought it was so interesting. Ted Cruz's comments make more sense if you replace the word Mitch with the word Donald. It was Donald (laughs) Trump who recruited all these candidates that were loyal to him but couldn't help the Senate Republicans win a majority. And a bunch of them McConnell wasn't for. Right. And and, and had no control over. I mean, remember, Mitch McConnell, the, the quote that has led to so much uprising is Mitch McConnell saying in August, I think, Candidate quality matters in the Senate. Well, uh, November 8th, candidate quality mattered in the Senate. Blake Masters was a weak candidate. Mark Kelly was a strong candidate. Blake Masters, in a state like Arizona, should have run stronger. He did not. Um, I don't think that's Mitch McConnell's fault. And I just, again, I just keep coming back to, you don't beat someone with no one. Rick Scott can talk a big game. Ted Cruz can talk a big game. Josh Hawley tweeted out, you know, it's time for the old party to be over. It's time for the new party to arise. You got to win the votes, right? And right now, it just seems to me Mitch McConnell still has the votes. So, what, to what do you attribute the fact that Republicans failed to win uh, the Senate and did and underperformed so much in the House? Who do you actually blame? Well, I think it's a little easy to say it's all Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. But I think it's 70 percent Donald Trump. <laughs> and a good chunk of the remaining 30 percent is primary voters 
who were valuing some of the same things that had led them to embrace Trump in the first place. That is, I think that the Trump example was one of the things that led Republican voters to think, we're not going to pay a price if we run inexperienced candidates, if we run candidates who, who only throw bombs, if we run candidates who are far from the median voter on these issues. Now, the, the, the poor quality candidates, there were a mixed bag. Oz wasn't particularly extreme, for example, but he was a novice. He didn't actually live in the state, which was sort of a That's problem. That's pretty big. Yeah. Stop um, but I do, think, I do think that the candidate quality problem, the Trump problem, and the democracy denial problem were all interrelated. So, for example, these candidates who keep saying the 2020 election was stolen, I think it's not just people think that that's threatening. I think it's also it's weird and it's weak. But it, had it shows they're Trump's guys. They're not their own I, people. I think it had tactical implications, more, more importantly. And, and we can't forget, these were incumbent senators that won, right? They knew their states. They knew their people. Mark Kelly talked about the border a lot. Masto um, talked about, you know, what she was already doing for, this, for, for Nevada. Um, Fetterman... Abortion, abortion, abortion in Pennsylvania, right? So, but when you look at the tactical issues, the problem with talking about um, election deniers is that in Nevada, in Arizona, they had three weeks of early voting. The demo, if you look at those numbers, the Democrats' early voting in those states overtook the Republicans. They could never catch up. And that's because Republicans were depending on Election Day because they kept telling people early voting is yeah. not reliable. Don't which vote by mail. Happened, Don't is, vote way, anything. What happened and, in 2020 well, and you know, 2021 they, they in the what they sowed, right? Yeah. That, yeah. That's the problem. So let me just say one thing as a Pennsylvanian, which is I, I think it's, you know, in a, in a different set of circumstances, it's entirely possible that Oz could have beaten Fetterman. I mean, it was relatively close, not really actually all that close, but Fetterman was beatable. But one of the things I would hear from people in Pennsylvania, swing voters, battleground voters, is, is Oz was really a jerk about yeah. Fetterman's stroke. Yeah. Like he wasn't, and there isn't a tradition. The, the Pennsylvania Republicans, generally speaking, and there are exceptions to this, of course, but like there just isn't a history of bomb throwers. Rick Santorum's kind of an, an exception there. But like generally speaking, even Pat Toomey yeah. is like a genteel kind of guy. Tom Ridge, Arlen Specter. Yeah. There, yeah. there just isn't yeah. a history yeah. of people like making fun of somebody's stroke. And I think to me that's another kind of um, example of when the candidates don't have their own platform. They don't have the experience. They don't have the knowledge about the state to actually mm. talk about the issues, talk about what they want to do. That really wasn't the type of candidate Oz was. He he wasn't a visionary candidate. He wasn't a political politically minded candidate. So then, you know, he felt that one of the things that perhaps could give him support was attacking Fetterman's Being health. Trumpy. Being Trumpy. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure there also were pretty Trumpy people in his ear telling him that's how you win. I want to... I want one really important point, yeah. though, here, which is that, you know, Mitch McConnell actually didn't give his candidates messages, right? No. Nope. Rick Scott kind of tried. Voters were most concerned about the economy. That's what people said. That's what, you know, the exit polls showed. But the Republicans didn't really have a plan. They didn't have a not the guy you go to for the vision. And, and right. by the and way, so, at Mitch McConnell's, I mean, Mitch McConnell expressly said when Rick yeah. Scott came out with his plan, we don't need a plan. We don't, We're not right. running so, plan. so they ran against Which is always They default. ran against right. they, yeah. they, they used scare tactics. It didn't work. They didn't yeah. have something to vote for. So I do want just to play this because it, which is incredible, which one of the big winners, by the way, uh, of last Tuesday night uh, is Ron DeSantis, who had uh, uh, just an incredible... Yeah. 
uh, impressive showing, uh, in, not just with the re-election of like I think 19 points. Yeah. Um, uh, even though the first time he ran, he won by 0.4 points, mm-hmm. but he also like won Latino voters by, nine, Mi- by 19 Dade. points. Yeah. He won Miami-Dade County. He won yep. Palm Beach County. Yep. So really good night for him. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of talk about him running for president. I want you to take a listen to President Trump's daughter-in-law, Laura, uh, warning Ron DeSantis not to run. Take a listen. <laughs> I can tell you those primaries get very messy and very raw. We've experienced that before. Um, So wouldn't it be nicer for him? And I think he knows this to wait until 2028. (laughs) uh, Wouldn't it be nicer for him? That that was about as 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 nice a delivery of a thuggish line (laughs) that you could. I mean, like it's almost literally what a thug would say. That, That line is essentially like. I wouldn't want anything bad to happen to you if yeah. you decided to run for something. I mean, I'm not saying anything bad will happen. But it is rooted in reality. Even down in Florida, Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, they know what it's like to go up against Donald yeah. Trump and be attacked in really yeah. personal ways. Yeah. And Ron DeSantis hasn't had to campaign in that way. That being said, I don't think that's going to scare him off. I think Ron DeSantis right now is every day prepping for the Trump onslaught. But it's real that it's going to be a different type of race than anybody can really prepare for if and, they choose. And that's the second time a member of the Trump family has, has threatened Trump uh, not to, uh, threatened yes. DeSantis not to run. Donald Trump did so in an interview with the Wall Street Journal. He, he said, sure oh, did. real direct. Yeah. Look, I think we're going to sit back and see how the Trump announcement tomorrow lands, right? I mean, are they all going to be brave and jump in and have a food fight for us to watch or, or not? So good to have everybody here. Thank you so much for being here. Join me for a special live scene in town hall with former Vice President Mike Pence this Wednesday, 9 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Can presidential documents be considered personal and covered by executive privilege at the same time? That's the argument Donald Trump's legal team is making. Stay with us. And we're back with our politics lead. Former President Trump's lawyers took a new approach today. They argued in a court filing that documents Trump took to Mar-a-Lago after his presidency could be both personal and coverage by executive privilege. It's a novel argument. CNN's Caitlin Polanson. Ellie Honig, join us now. Caitlin, in the court filing, Trump's lawyers argue, quote, the Presidential Records Act then is clear. A president determines whether a document constitutes a presidential record or a personal record. There is no authority whatsoever for the notion that the government can seize documents from a president and simply declare that they are presidential records, unquote. I'm not sure if that's accurate. How did the Justice Department respond? Well, the Justice Department is saying pretty clearly none of this makes any sense. Donald Trump is over there saying in his court filings, it's me. I'm the one that gets to determine what's a presidential record, what's a personal record. And the reason he's doing that is because he wants those records to stay out of criminal investigators' hands. If he gets to call them personal or executive privilege, uh, that means that the criminal prosecutors looking into what was being kept at Mar-a-Lago after the presidency, they won't get access to here. But the Justice Department, they're saying in this court filing today, there's about 3,000 documents that are not marked as classified, that are in dispute, that they're arguing over with Trump. And they're saying these are clearly presidential records. They're not personal records. They weren't gifts. They weren't clothing. They were things like documents created around the president for the president about the presidency, that it just doesn't make sense what Trump is arguing. And they point out that if Trump can't claim something is personal, then he wants to say if he loses, he wants to claim it as executive privilege. That doesn't make sense either. They say it's a shell game. And Ellie, the Justice Department redacted the examples of records that Trump was trying to categorize as personal. So we don't know exactly 
what those would look like, what those are. But how likely is it that a record could be both personal and protected by the Presidential Records Act? Yeah, Jake, uh, Donald Trump is trying to walk a very narrow, perhaps non-existent tightrope here. Here's why. Let's assume there is a personal record here. Let's assume diary entries, an individual's diary entries. All that means is the president gets to take custody of those documents, but doesn't necessarily have to turn them over to the archives. It does not mean, however, those documents can never be seized by the FBI or can never be used against the person in a future criminal or civil proceeding. It doesn't immunize those records from being used against the person. And this argument that, well, they're either personal or they're executive privilege, that is internally contradictory because the definition of an executive privilege document is something relating to the affairs of state, to governmental business, definitionally not a personal record. And, and Caitlin, let's turn to Trump suing the January 6th Select House Committee. He's challenging both the legitimacy of the committee and claiming he should be immune from testimony about the time he was president. Is there any chance that there will be a ruling on this before the new Congress gets sworn in? Well, we don't have very many easy answers, Jake, but this one is a pretty clear no. Uh, I mean, it's a lawsuit. This is a lawsuit that would take time. It's a lawsuit before a trial judge in Florida. Even if that judge acted really fast and it went to a, an appeals court, it would still take way too long. The courts just don't move that fast, especially with the holidays coming up. They only have about two months to go. And so we're saying here that this is essentially a dead end for the House Select Committee with these subpoenas for Donald Trump. And we don't offer and have that type of uh, finality that we can predict with court filings. But this one really is one of those situations where Trump has kicked this to the courts and the courts just aren't going to be able to sort it out. And Ellie, today uh, the Supreme Court cleared the way for the January 6th committee to obtain Arizona Republican chairwoman Kelly Ward's call logs. There have been more interviews with Secret Service agents. There's uh, this ongoing back and forth with Trump. What are you expecting in these last few weeks of committee work? Well, Jake, Caitlin's right. There's just not enough time to resolve all these legal disputes. I see two big imperatives left for the committee. Number one, they'll issue their report. That's going to be historically significant. Number two, all of the evidence that the committee has gathered and will gather, that all has been available and will be available to prosecutors. And now that we're done midterms, Jake, I think the focus is going to turn away from Congress, away from the January 6th committee, but onto heavier hitters, onto the Fulton County District Attorney, most importantly, onto the United States Department of Justice. All right, Ellie Honig and Kaylin Plants, thanks to both of you. Just in, federal prosecutors investigating former Trump personal attorney Rudy Giuliani are closing the long-running probe without filing any charges. The investigation focused on whether the former New York City mayor illegally lobbied the Trump administration on behalf of Ukrainian officials. Prosecutors made the decision after reviewing evidence and deciding that the evidence seized during raids on his residence and law office in April 2021. Uh, the decision marks a major victory for Giuliani, but his legal troubles are not yet over. He remains a target of a special grand jury in Georgia, investigating his attempts to overturn the 2020 election. Coming up, just days after Russia withdraws from a key region of Ukraine, Ukraine's president makes a surprise visit to the area. What's next for war in Ukraine? In our world lead now, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky making an unannounced visit to Kherson today to mark the region's liberation from Russian occupation. On Friday, Ukrainian forces swept into the area after Russian troops withdrew from the west bank of the Dnipro River. This is being touted by Ukraine's allies, including the United States, as a major victory. First of all, it was a significant, significant victory for Ukraine. Significant victory. And... Uh, I can do nothing but uh, 
applaud the courage, determination, and capacity of the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian military. But perhaps not surprisingly, the Kremlin is not going quietly. Today, Russian officials stated that Kherson is still Russian territory, even as Ukraine works to restore to uh, the cut power lines and train service to the region. CNN Sam Kiley is in Kiev, Ukraine for us. Sam, what are we learning about the Russian occupation as Ukrainians emerge? Well, the first thing, Jake, is that the Russians still control about 60% of Kherson. They still control the West Bank, uh, sorry, the East Bank uh, area. It is the city of Kherson that has been liberated. And in that liberated area, President Zelensky, and it's not just that city, there's a large area of uh, uh, the rest of the region too that's been liberated very recently. They're saying that they, the president was saying they found cases, some 400 cases at least of uh, alleged war crimes. Of course, the infrastructure has been destroyed. The systematic destruction of the electrical systems mean that water is in a chronically short supply. He came down to Kherson, though, to promise the newly liberated population that they would get the city up and running as quickly as possible. But, Jake, just across the river now, the Russians are known to be digging in. In all probability, they've got pre-prepared positions there for their rockets and artillery, which remain within easy range of the Kherson city itself and all of those other liberated villages. And the Ukrainians are now bracing for what they anticipate to be a counterattack, at least just in the form of artillery, using the Dnieper River uh, as a natural defence, Jake. And, and Sam, what is next for Ukrainian forces? Well, I think that's the really key question here. If the Ukrainians can settle into Kherson city and continue to kind of hold Russian troops there, it could arguably release Ukrainian troops to join the battle in the east, particularly around the town of Bakhmut to the east of uh, Kramatorsk, uh, where the Ukrainians had enjoyed some advances, but the fighting has been incredibly intense. I've been talking to particularly foreign British and American volunteers who've been fighting there who repeatedly describe it as hell on earth. And these are people from special forces backgrounds. They say they've never seen anything like it. Very, very high casualty rates on both sides. But if the Ukrainians could, could relieve their effort from Kherson and reinforce their effort uh, in the east, then they could keep the Russian pre the pressure on the Russians and, uh, through the winter uh, and not have to deal with crossing that Dnieper River. All right, Sam Kiley from Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you so much. A rare meeting between the head of the CIA and his Russian counterpart happened in Turkey today. CNN White House reporter Natasha Bertrand joins us. Natasha, what was the focus of CIA Director Bill Burns face-to-face? -face? Well, Jake, this was primarily about Burns warning the Russians not to use nuclear weapons. It was a continuation of the pattern that we've seen from the U.S. just warning Russian officials of the consequences should they choose to take that very escalatory and dramatic step. Now, what we are told is that this is part of this larger communication that the U.S. has been trying to keep open, this channel that the U.S. has been trying to keep open with the Russians about the possibility that they could use nuclear weapons. Because, of course, they have not been shy about, you know, giving veiled hints, not so veiled hints, I should say, that they might be willing to use one. Now, of course, the U.S. has seen no evidence as of right now that Vladimir Putin has decided to use such a weapon in Ukraine. But the argument that they are making here is that they need to seize all possible opportunities to communicate with the Russians clearly and openly that there will be very grave consequences if they do use one. Could this meeting between Burns of the CIA and his, and his counterpart lead to any progress in getting the two American 
hostages, essentially, detainees, uh, Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan released. Yeah, so interestingly, we are told that this was a topic of conversation between Burns as, and his counterpart, the Russian intelligence chief. And ultimately, though, there's not a lot of optimism here. Um, the president had expressed some hope that maybe because after the midterms, because the midterms had ended, that the Russians might be more willing to negotiate with the Americans about the release. Probably they were a little less willing to give President Biden that win ahead of the midterms. Uh, but what we're hearing is that there really is not a lot of movement on the issue. It was discussed by Bill Burns, but it was not the main subject of conversation. The real main meat of that talk was about the nuclear weapons use. So it remains to be seen uh, whether there's going to be any progress moving forward on the detainees there. All right, Natasha Bertrand, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Sentenced to death for protesting one of the most oppressive regimes in the world. What this means for the other Iranian protesters. Stay with us. In our worldly now, an Iranian court has issued its first death sentence linked to recent nationwide protest sparked by the death of 22-year-old Masa Jina Amini. Amini, as you might recall, died in September after being detained by Iran's morality police, quote-unquote, for allegedly wearing her hijab incorrectly, seen as Melissa Bell joins me. Melissa, what more do we know about this protester who received the death sentence? Well, the point is, Jake, we know very little about their identity, simply that they've been sentenced for enmity against God for having burnt down a government building. Now, according to the Norway-based Iran human rights NGO, there are about 20 protesters that have been charged with offenses that carry the death penalty since these protests began nearly two months ago. Now, we have no way of knowing which of those protesters it is. And this is something that the UN Human Rights Council warned about on Friday, urging Tehran to stop handing down these sentences that carry the death penalty, because what we're talking about are protests that have been carried out largely peacefully and in the name, as you say, of of that young woman who was killed uh, back in September that have carried the voices of the people over the course of the last few weeks. We don't know who that person is. We know simply what they may face and that some of those parents of the young protesters, some of these who are facing offences carrying the death penalty in their early 20s, men and women who've been out protesting over the course of the last few weeks, their parents, no contact with them, no way of knowing what's going on with them and fearing that the next thing they're going to hear, Jake, is that their loved one has been hanged. And this is what's been so impressive about these protests. Day after day, people going out on the streets with those chants, death to the dictator, death to Khamenei, and of course that chant that has now become known outside of Iran so well, women, life, freedom. Women, life, freedom. And Melissa, we're learning that the European Union has announced some new sanctions against Iran. That's right. The United States had announced its round of sanctions at the end of October. The European Union had announced a previous round of sanctions, again, targeting those that they believe are responsible, not just uh, for the death of Masa Amini, but also for the repression that has followed. This latest round announced today by the European Union, in coordination with the United Kingdom, aimed, again, not just at those they believe are responsible for the initial uh, arrest and death uh, that sparked these protests, but also for all the repression that has followed. And specifically, Jake, and I think this is important, targeting the communications minister and the chief of cyber police, those people that have been responsible for the shutting down of the Internet in Iran that has made it so difficult, not just for protesters to carry on spreading what has been going on inside the country, but those important acts of bravery and defiance that we've seen from people who are go from sports personalities to Iranian uh, cinema stars, TV personalities, trying to carry the word that this needs to continue. And Melissa, tell us the status of the protests in Iran. I, I assume they're still ongoing. 
they're still ongoing. The latest video that we have cleared here at CNN goes back to Friday. This was in the southeast of the country, and you can see that this has continued. Those chants, death to the dictator, death to Khamenei, carried across Iran in so many cities uh, day in, day out. The principal focus, of course, of those protests are the universities. That is where, from where they spread uh, into the evening. And I think it's important for our viewers to remember that here at CNN, those are videos that we're able to carry thanks to the activists, the ordinary citizens, the journalists that continue to film them day in, day out, showing not just the brutality, Jake, of the repression, but perhaps more importantly, the determination and the unbroken nature of those who are insisting on protesting. All right. Very brave people. Melissa Bell, thank you so much. One of the world's richest men talks about the chances of a recession and what he would do to prepare. Stay with us. The New York Times reports Amazon is planning to lay off 10,000 employees as soon as this week. This comes as Jeff Bezos tells CNN the people should hope for the best, but prepare for the worst when it comes to the economy. CNN's Chloe Milas has more on this exclusive interview. Jake, I sat down with Jeff Bezos and his partner, Lauren Sanchez, over the weekend at their Washington, D.C. home. And we discussed these tough economic times. And I asked Jeff, are we in a recession? I don't know whether we're technically in a recession. I know economists argue over that and they have certain technical definitions. What I can tell you is uh, the economy does not look great right now. Things are slowing down. You're seeing layoffs in many, many sectors of the economy. People are, are, are slowing down. Um, the probabilities say if we're not in a recession right now, we're likely to be in one very soon. So my advice to people, whether they're small business owners or, you know, is uh, uh, take some risk off the table. If you were going to make a, a purchase, maybe slow down that purchase a little bit. Keep some dry powder on hand. This conversation with the couple came on the heels of them awarding Dolly Parton Friday night with one of their Courage and Civility Awards, which means that Dolly gets a $100 million grant to do whatever she wants when it comes to philanthropy. Previously, they've awarded CNN's Van Jones and also Chef Jose Andres. Now, also, Jeff told me during this interview that he does plan to give the majority of his wealth away before he dies. Back to you. All right, Chloe Malas, thanks so much. Well wishes for comedian Jay Leno, who was burned in a gas fire over the weekend. Leno says a car in his garage burst into flames. Doctors say he was burned on his face and hands. Leno tells Variety magazine he is okay. He needs a week or two to get back on his feet. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.